Here we are in Mark chapter 13. Let me give you a little bit of a setup. Did I already say my name's Darren? I think I maybe did. I work here. My name's Darren. It doesn't matter. Mark 13, we've been studying for a while. And uh, when we come to this particular text, if you uh, did the Mark reading this week, as a church, we're trying to read in advance every week. There's a, there's a pathway for reading the book of Mark. It's on a little bookmark there that's in front of you in the seat back if you don't have one of those already. But if you were doing the reading in Mark this week and you get to this section, I'm guessing that you probably felt a little overwhelmed. There's a lot of weird stuff in Mark chapter 13. There's a lot of things that are hard to understand, things that feel maybe a little too vague. You'd like a little more specific. You might have felt prompted to uh, make some guesses about timetables or how these things line up with current events or with historical events or whatever. Let me just give you a little bit of, uh, of background or a little bit of setup before we dive into what's actually in the text. Let me say this. Mark 13 is an interesting chapter in that it's written in the style of what we would call apocalyptic literature, right? Apocalyptic literature has certain, uh, it has certain features. In apocalyptic literature, you're usually hearing a variety of things like uh, signs and wonders and timetables. There are always catastrophes and deceivers or false prophets or false Christs. Uh, many times in apocalyptic literature, you see wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and those kinds of things. Uh, you will also always, uh, almost always hear about salvation and return. All of those things exist in this chapter in one form or another. And so when you look at it at first glance, you go, okay, well, this is apocalyptic literature. That's the way we characterize this. In the midst of a broader narrative, a gospel narrative about Jesus, here, what it looks like is we've just got some apocalyptic literature. What's interesting about Mark 13 is that unlike the rest of apocalyptic literature, the themes of Mark 13 are distinctly anti-apocalyptic, right? So that's a little weird. What Jesus is saying to the people that are listening to him, and then what Mark is saying to his audience as he repeats the things that Jesus said to his original crowd, and then what we should receive from Jesus here in 2024 as we listen to what Mark wrote down inspired by the Holy Spirit. A couple of different audiences there, but the message of what Jesus is saying is not a message of doomsday, right? His message is not a message of fear. It's not a message of self-protection or self-preservation. His message in the midst of what otherwise would be received as apocalyptic literature is actually very hopeful. He doesn't actually give any specific signs or any specific times. Everything is kind of couched in vagary and ambiguity. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus does that on purpose. So after having studied this for a little while, you maybe are frustrated that there aren't more specifics in it. I think his lack of specificity is maybe the point, right? So stay with me here for a second. It's interesting when you read commentaries or you listen to theologians uh, with regard to Mark 13, and I'll, I'll tell you, you're welcome to do this work if you want to. I, I, you might find it encouraging, but there are literally hundreds of divergent opinions on Mark 13. Hundreds. They disagree on what specific words mean. They disagree on what specific phrases point to. Or do they point to anything? Or do they point to multiple things, right? There are some people who will say all of Mark 13 is about the fall of the temple in AD 70 under the, un, under the attack of Titus, right? And they'll go, everything you see here in Mark 13 was accomplished, right? Everything Jesus said, it's already been fulfilled. He was talking about the fall of the temple. 
But there are some really good arguments to say, well, it isn't just that. It's also the second coming of Christ. There's some things he says here that seem not to point at AD 70, but to point at a date that still is to come. And then there are some people who say this doesn't have anything to do with AD 70. It only has to do with the second coming. There are some who will say there are signs and there are timetables. And some who will say there are no signs and there are no timetables. I mean, it, it is all over the place. Every phrase, every word, you'll get multiple opinions on these particular things. And the reason why I think we get multiple opinions on all of these things is because we as human beings are tempted to do the very thing that Jesus is speaking against in Mark 13. Does that make sense? So we are people who want to know. We want to solve all the clues. We want to be, you know, Sherlock Holmes. We want to put all the pieces together and solve the puzzle. We want to get the right guesses. We want to have the right conclusions. And most importantly, we want to know what's going on in our world, right? So we read a thing like Mark 13 and our mind immediately goes to, well, maybe he meant this and maybe he means this and maybe he means this. And if you look at these other texts, you see the way it lines up. We start to chase our guesses, but I want to caution you about chasing your guesses about Mark 13 because the moment you start to chase your guesses about Mark 13, you've immediately started to miss the real thing he's emphasizing that he's pushing us towards, right? The themes all throughout the chapter, the themes in Mark 13 again and again are themes of awareness and discernment allegiance and trust and patience and endurance of faithfulness even in the midst of difficulty, right? Remember where this chapter falls. We've been studying over the last couple of weeks that Jesus has done some very sort of pointed things speaking about the bankruptcy of the, the Jewish religious system, right? He did the cursing of the fig tree and he talked about the fact that the, there's no fruit on the fig tree, right? He went in and he turned over the tables in the temple and he said, my father's house will not be made a house of trade right? It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all kinds of people. So both in his physical actions, in his proclamations, most recently in the stuff we looked at last week in, in Mark, uh, the end of Mark 11 and all of 12, there are places there where he denounces the Jewish leadership for saying that they basically aren't paying attention to the authority of God, but they're essentially paying attention to the opinions of other people. So not only has he turned over the tables, not only has he compared them to a fruitless fig tree, not only has he denounced the leadership, but now as they come out of Jerusalem, his disciples look at the physical building, right? Jesus has already pulled the rug out from underneath the leadership and the philosophy and the fruitlessness. He's essentially said there is something new coming. Now as they walk out of Jerusalem, his disciples can't help but admire the beauty of the physical building, right? So look at this in the first couple of verses of Mark 13. It says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? Even after everything Jesus has said, the disciples can't help themselves from declaring admiration for the physical temple's structure itself. Now, to be fair to this disciple who's unnamed in this particular moment, to be fair to this disciple, the temple was a wonderful building to behold. It was beautiful and ornate. It was one of the most beautiful buildings, if not the most beautiful buildings of contemporary culture at the time. So there was a sense of both religious and national pride associated to the beauty of the building, right? So it's not any wonder that as they leave the temple and they've already heard about the bankruptcy of its leadership and its fruitlessness and its cursedness, that they might go, well, after all of that, I mean, it is still pretty to look at, right? Maybe that's the tone of what's happening here, right? Maybe they're saying, you know, for all of its problems, it's a beautiful architectural piece. 
But Jesus doesn't respond to it exactly like that. In fact, when they say to him, look how beautiful the stones and the buildings are, Jesus says in verse two, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now it's almost certain at this point that what Jesus is pointing to is the destruction of the temple in AD 70, right? We know that that's what he's pointing to. Interestingly, those who would want to debate, and I don't want to get in the weeds on this today, will say that strictly speaking, not every stone was torn down, right? So if you're looking for a way to debunk the prophecies of Jesus, you go, he got this wrong. There's still a wall. In fact, you can go see it today that didn't get torn apart in that destruction, right? The point of Jesus is don't let yourself be allegiant to physical structures. Don't let yourself be allegiant to national sources of pride or religious sources of pride. I've already told you this system is bankrupt. Let your allegiance lie with me. He says, as we walk out of the temple, you're tempted to look and go, look at this glorious thing that we've built that represents who we are. And I'm trying to tell you, that thing will be toppled. God will allow that thing to be toppled because that's not where your heart and your mind and your allegiance is supposed to be. You're supposed to trust in things that cannot be toppled. Does that make sense? Jesus says, come on, right? He's pulling his disciples to understand that there are things more valuable than the physical structure in front of them, right? They continue to admire the physical building, and he says to them, don't get attached. Let's keep reading here through verse, uh, we'll read through verse five. He says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, by the way, that's east of the city now, so they've left Jerusalem proper, and they've sort of walked up the hill on the other side. As they sit down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is a natural thing for them to ask, right? If Jesus were to say to you, hey, I hope you like this big pizza hut where you go to church, but someday it's gonna burn down, you might be tempted to look at Jesus and go, can you tell us when our pizza hut's gonna burn down? We really like this pizza hut, right? Jesus says to them, not one stone will be left. And they say to him, give us the timetables. Tell us the signs. What should we be watching for, for this prophecy to be fulfilled? Now it's understandable that they would ask this question. It's understandable that they would want to know when it's all going to come to pass. I don't know if you ever did any uh, babysitting when you were growing up, but when I did babysitting, or even when I just watched my little brother, I like to know what time my mom was going to be home. You know what I'm saying? I like to know what time my mom was going to be home because if I knew my mom wasn't going to be home before midnight, then I knew there was all kinds of shenanigans that could go on from, you know, 7 o'clock until 11.59, right? At about 11.59, if my mom said, I'm not going to be home until after midnight, at 11.59, I'd start to wash the dishes, I'd start to pick up the toys, I'd try and scrub the paint off the walls or whatever, right? Put my little brother to bed finally, do all the things that needed to be done before my mom walked in the door. The worst possible thing my mom could say to me me is, I'm not going to tell you what time I'm coming home, right? Why? Because the moment that she says, it's not for you to know what time I'm going to come home, then I have to actually be prepared for her to walk in the door at any moment. It means I have to be paying attention to what my little brother's doing. It means I have to be paying attention to where the paints are and what's going on with the dishes. And has everybody been fed? I have to be awake. I have to be vigilant. I have to be aware of the circumstances. I actually have to pay attention if I don't know what time my mom's coming home. But I wanted to know what time she was coming home so that I could create more space for myself to do whatever I want. 
Now that might seem like a silly illustration, but it's actually a pretty exact replication of what Jesus is saying in the totality of Mark 13. They say to him, give us the times and tell us the signs. And he says to them, look at verse five. They say, tell us the times and the signs. He says in verse five, see that no one leads you astray. His call here is for awareness. He says, you're worried about knowing exactly when the temple will be destroyed or exactly when I'll return or exactly when these things are gonna go down. You want signs and times, but I'm telling you what you need to be instead is discerning. You need to be alert. You need to be awake and aware. Otherwise, it will be very easy for you to be distracted by these very same terms, right? Because what will happen, and he'll say this further on, is that there will be a whole host of people who will come along, and by telling you that they can give you some sense of the times, or some sense of the signs, by telling you that they know some secret hidden knowledge that you don't know, or some secret hidden wisdom that you can't understand, they will lead you astray. You're hungry to know what time these things are going to go on, and that hunger, if you're not careful with it, will lead you to follow false teachers will lead you to rest yourself in false pride, will lead you to be in a place of sort of ambivalence because you're believing something that isn't true. He says, see to it. And that see to it is a call for awareness, right? It's not a call to fear. It's not a call for speculation or self-protection or ambivalence. He's saying, be discerning, be aware. I want you to be people of awareness and discernment of action and faithfulness because the timing cannot be known. In the, in the passage we just read a second ago, if you jump down really quickly to verse 32, Jesus says in no uncertain terms, in verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's a great summary for what Jesus is trying to emphasize in Mark 13. They say, oh, the temple's gonna be destroyed. Can you give us some hints about when that's gonna go down? Can you give us some signs to watch for? And Jesus says, nobody knows when it's gonna happen. What you have to do is be sure that no one leads you astray. What you have to do is be vigilant and make sure you're paying attention to what I have said instead of what all these other people will say. And this is a great reminder for us today because we still, some 2,000 years later, live in a time period, just like every time period between then and now, in which people continue to say, it's the end of the world, and I can show you why. Come and listen to my series on Revelation, or come and listen to my series on Daniel, or read my books, or study my pamphlets, or whatever. You don't have to look very hard. I mean, you can look in a you know, 30 mile radius and find churches that are established on doomsday prophets. Jesus has said in no uncertain terms in Mark 13, if someone is pretending that they know when I'm coming back, when all of these things will take place, and they're using that to gather and rally a following, you can be sure that's a false prophet. He says, nobody knows. I don't even know, he says. The Father knows, and he'll tell us. So what you need to do is stay awake. What you need to do is be faithful and aware because you don't know what time mom is coming home, right? He follows that. Look at verse six. Jesus continues. In five, he says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, verse six, saying, I'm he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard. 
For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's really interesting. They say to him, tell us when it's going to happen. What are the signs? Give us the timetables. Walk us through it. When will the stones be turned over? When is the end coming? And he says, hold on. He says, what you need to worry about is being alert, being awake, paying attention to what I've said. He says, let me just tell you, there are going to be wars and there are going to be famines and there are going to be false prophets. There are going to be times in which you were persecuted, when you're dragged off to jail, when your friends turn against you, when your parents turn against you, when your kids turn against you. All this stuff is going to happen and none of that means it's the end. That stuff is just normal life living in a broken and fallen world waiting for the end, right? So you'll be tempted when you're persecuted. You'll be tempted when you see an earthquake or when you see a fire. You'll be tempted when you hear about a war or you see a war. You'll be tempted to go, this is it, it's the end, right? This must be the end of days. He says, resist that temptation because even in the midst of those things, right? Jesus talks about deceivers and destruction and disaster and difficulty. And he says, none of these are signs. They're just normal. He says, in the midst of these events, you have to be aware of the opportunities. In the midst of these events, normal things, you have to be aware of the opportunities. Think about this for a second. How easy is it for us, even now, to see terrible things that are happening or to see terrible people or to see terrible events around the world and go, this is it, the clock's running down, right? We're doing the very thing Jesus says we're not supposed to do. What Jesus says is when you see these things occurring, False prophets, people who come in my name and do things that have nothing to do with me, people who stand up and pretend to be my followers or pretend to be me myself, that's not the end. That's just an opportunity. You see a fire, you see an earthquake, you see a war, a rumor of war, you get thrown into jail, you falsely accused, you imprisoned, you flogged in front of a bunch of people, that's not the end. That's an opportunity. Start with me, if you will, just looking at these opportunities as he describes them. Look at verse 9. He says, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. If you have one of our Mark journals this morning and you're the kind of person who uh, takes notes or whatever, I'd encourage you to outline or underline the words for my sake. He says, they'll deliver you over to councils, you'll be beaten in synagogues, you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake, underlined, right, to bear witness before them. He goes, you'll be tempted to think that when you're standing in front of governors and people are accusing you and they're calling you a heretic and they're calling you a liar and a fake and all these things, you'll be tempted to think this is the end. He says, it's not the end, it's an opportunity. You're in that spot to show me off, to put me on display, to reveal me in the midst of opposition, to put Jesus on display. He says, you're in that spot, not because it's the end of the world. Don't be looking for a sign or a timetable. Instead, be looking for an opportunity in the midst of the difficulty to bear witness to who I am. He says, there's an opportunity in the midst of this difficulty for witness. Not only that, look at verse 10. He says, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, that's a verse that's been pulled out of context, and people will say, there it is. 
there's a sign. They'll do the exact thing that Jesus is not doing in the text, and they'll say, hey, if we want Jesus to come back this year, what we got to do is find every unreached people group and make sure we've handed them a gospel tract because Jesus says he's not coming until we do that thing. In the broader picture of what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying you can make this occur, you can solve the timeline. What he's saying is, rather than worrying about the end of the world, rather than worrying about your own persecution, maybe you should feel compassion for people who haven't met me yet, right? The gospel isn't just for you. The truth of who I am and what I've come to do, the truth of the bankruptcy of the Jewish religious system and the tearing down of this temple, it's not just for you, it's for everybody. He says in verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What's that? It's an opportunity for hope. It's an opportunity for compassion. He says in the midst of all this difficulty and disaster, there's an opportunity for you to go further and to share more deeply with greater compassion to people that are outside your little circle, people that are outside the walls of your little clique. Keep reading here in verse 11. He says, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you were, uh, about what you were to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He says, in the midst of this difficulty and trial, he's like, that's not the end. It's an opportunity for you to trust me, for you to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit, for you to relinquish your anxiety. Literally, he says there, don't be anxious when these things go down. Instead of being anxious, listen for my voice. I'll tell you what to say. I'm with you, I'll walk with you, I'll be with you in the midst of all the difficulty and the trial. Rather than being anxious, this is an opportunity for you to trust me more deeply, for you to follow me in obedience, because not only does he say the Holy Spirit will give you what to say, but the implication is that when the Holy Spirit gives you what to say, you'll say it. So there's an opportunity for discernment and trusting in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be anxious, but then there's also an opportunity for obedience, that he gives you the things to say in the midst of difficulty, and you say them. If we continue to read verse 12 and 13, he says, brother and brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. He says in the midst of all of this pain and all of this suffering and all this difficulty, you shouldn't think that's the end of the world. You shouldn't think that's the end of your ministry. He's like, that's just par for the course. And in fact, when you're facing all of this difficulty and trial, you've got a beautiful opportunity to endure, to persevere, right? I have it tattooed right here on my, on my wrist where I can see it. I see it all day long. It says heart and nerve. Heart and nerve, that's written in my wife's handwriting. That's written there as a reminder to me every moment of every day of what it takes to persevere as a pastor, right? That when it's hard and when it's difficult and when people say things about you that aren't true or whatever, you don't give up. Why? Because you love Jesus and you love other people, that's heart. And you recognize that he's called you to something. So you're courageous in the moment. Endure, right? Endurance and perseverance, heart and nerve. That's what Jesus is saying here. They're going, tell us the times. Tell us when it's all going to end. Tell us when mom's coming home so we can get the kitchen cleaned up. And he goes, nah, I'm not giving you any of that. Look, there will be fires and there will be earthquakes and there will be wars and there will be persecution. There will be false prophets and deceivers. And in the midst of that, rather than seeing the end, see opportunity for witness and hope and compassion and trust and obedience and endurance. Difficulty, he says, will not prevent the gospel, but will promote it. Think about that for a second. How often do we fall into the trap of thinking that opposition 
will actually diminish the scope of the gospel. But that has not been historically true in any era since Jesus came to the earth. In every era, opposition has only promoted the gospel, right? So in those moments where we're tempted to be scared and to see opposition as something to be fearful of or a sign of the end of the world, Jesus says, no, when you face opposition, the gospel's just gonna blow up more. So lean into your trust in me, right? Now he shows some different responses here as he continues. He's just talked to us about faithfulness and endurance, staying awake and alert. Now look in 14. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, and none of us do, uh, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I just want to say a quick aside about that parenthetical statement. People aren't sure whether that's supposed to be in red letters, right? Is that Jesus talking to the original crowd? Is that Mark talking to his crowd when he writes it under the inspiration of the Spirit? Uh, like, or, or is it something that somebody else had? Like, nobody's exactly sure what Jesus meant by that. When he talks about the abomination of desolation to a Jewish crowd, that would have been slightly familiar because there's a reference to the abomination of desolation in Daniel 11 and 12. You can go back and look at that later if you want. But essentially, in, in the prophecies of Daniel, there is this indication that someone will come and do something that is abominable that creates desolation. It's either a someone or a something. Some people have said it's going to be a statue, and some people have said it's actually a person. And if you go all the way to the writings of Paul, and you look at a little bit of, what, uh, of what's in Revelation with John, uh, there are some things there that make people think, well, maybe this is the Antichrist. This is where it gets blurry, right? Is he talking about something Titus did in AD 70 when he walked into the temple where he should not have gone? Maybe. Is he talking about something that will happen at the end of days when Jesus returns with the Antichrist? Maybe. Is he talking about both at the same time? Maybe. My point for you today is don't get bogged down in your guesses because that's not the point of Mark 13. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, so when someone walks into a place, let's just say for argument's sake, he's talking about Titus, when Titus overthrows the temple. When you see the temple going down and the stones being overturned, here's his response there. Then let those in who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. When we were studying this in the teaching team, I, I said to the team, I was like, it's nice that Jesus says to them, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. What I would have liked is if Jesus would have prayed for that himself. Sheesh, Right? He says, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. Now, there's a slightly different sentiment here than the verses we previously read. In the verses we previously read, he said, hey, when you're persecuted and when there's war and famine and all these things, I want you to see that as an opportunity to put me on display for my sake to be my witnesses and to endure, right? 
awake and active. Interestingly, when we get to verse 14 and following, his prescription is different. There he's not prescribing endurance. He's not saying, stand firm and say the things the Holy Spirit tells you to say. In 14 and following, he's saying, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see this place desecrated, like when you can tell it's going down, Then the response, he says, is to run. Run for your life. Don't take your coat. Don't pick up your favorite photo albums. Like, get to the hills, right? And woe to the pregnant ladies and woe to the nursing moms and pray it doesn't happen on slippery ice, right? What's what's the difference between these two? Why is there a call in one case for endurance, right, for, for standing firm, and in the second case, there's the admission of Jesus to run? Well, they're totally different things. I told you before uh, that when, when you're called to stand, we circled it, didn't we underline it? Who's that for? That's for Jesus' sake. But when the religious institution is being destroyed, when the source of your national pride is being destroyed when the architectural structure that you love so much but is associated with spiritual bankruptcy is being destroyed, don't stand and fight for that institution. Don't stand and fight for that building. Don't stand and fight for your old religious practice. Don't stand and fight for those bankrupt religious leaders. Don't stand and fight for those false prophets. Don't stand and fight for all of these things that are not me. He says when it comes time and you start to see those things going down, Get out of there. Those aren't worth losing your life over. What's worth losing your life over? Jesus. And nothing else, right? Maybe the service of others. Jesus would demonstrate that for sure. But he says, if you're tempted to put your feet down and root down as they start to destroy the temple because you feel some sort of allegiance to this building or this old institution or this old religious practice, if you're tempted to want to put up your dukes and fight, let me just tell you, that thing's going to be destroyed and you should hit the hills, The difference is he's not calling us to lay down our lives for religious institutions or for national pride or for architectural wonders. He's calling us, right, to pay attention and to give up our lives for that which has meaning. We shouldn't be led astray by false Christs and prophets who will use circumstances and signs and wonders to deceive people. This is a further admonition for us to be awake and alert, to know the difference. What is worth standing for and what is not? what is worth defending, what is worth arguing, and what is not. The cause of Christ, the cause of the gospel spreading to the whole world. These are the places where God's power is brought to bear, right? Now in 24, look at 24, it says, in those days, verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Uh, A lot of people here look at that and they go, that can't be talking about 80, 70 because the stars aren't falling and the the moon doesn't go dark and whatever. That that has to be talking about the second coming of Christ. Maybe uh, there are really good arguments to be made for the fact that when he talks about the second coming, when he says, the son of man coming in the clouds that's a quotation from Daniel chapter 7 which is not so much about Jesus returning to the earth as it is about him returning to the throne room so it is possible that even this sort of apocalyptic language about the dark and the smoke and the sun and the moon and the stars even that could be poetic language about the fall of the temple in AD 70 I don't want to make a case for either of those because again the point of Mark 13 is the more time we spend making a case for our argument about apocalyptic things signs and wonders we've miss the heart of Jesus, who has not called us to speculate about the times or the signs, but rather has called us to give up our lives in service of Jesus and the gospel. 
What I do see in 24 through 27, whether it's uh, 80, 70, or whether it's the second coming of Christ, or whether it's both of those, what I do see is Jesus is saying to them, and this sets up these last two stories, he says in 27, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's saying, when all of these earthly things are happening and you're tempted to be terrified, remember who's got the power and who's got the glory. It's Jesus. It's me, he says. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. When you're tempted to be fearful and despair, when you're tempted to be anxious, remember I'm doing a work and that work involves the gathering of people from every part of the world. That my people are from every part of the world and nothing will thwart me in that mission. Jesus is saying you'll, you'll be worried. You'll look at the world around you and you'll go, this is it, this is the end. It's all coming down. It's like, remember who's got the power and remember whose mission we're on. That mission will be accomplished. Even in the midst of the sun being darkened and the moon blanking out and the stars falling, God's purposes will be accomplished by the power of Christ, right? And he gives two closing stories that sort of emphasize where our minds should be, parables. 28 and following, we, we read some of this earlier. It says in 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He goes back to the illustration of a fig tree, which he's already used to talk about, uh, to talk about the, the Jewish nation and its bankruptcy, its lack of fruit. Now he says there's a new fig tree, right? Who's that? It's us. And he says, there's this new fruit being produced and you'll look at these leaves and you'll look at these tender shoots and I, what I want you to see is the fact that there is a new thing happening. I want you to be excited about the summer. Look at the way he says this. He says, when, the, when it puts, the branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. What's he saying? I want you to be excited about the fact that a new thing is being accomplished. You see things going on in the world that you can't control or that you don't like or that you wish were different. You face persecution and difficulty. You see false prophets and people claiming all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. I don't want you to despair and I don't want you to be sorrowful and I definitely don't want to be anxious or fearful because I got all the power and my mission is being accomplished. But what I want is for you to be excited about the harvest around the corner. When you see the tender shoots and you see the leaves, be excited because fruit is on the way. Fruit is on the way. He says, get excited. The summer's almost here. The Messiah is at the door, right? Now, again, there's a lot of people that will argue about different things when he says this generation will not pass until these things take place. For people who are calling this 80-70, that makes great sense. For people who are saying it's the second coming, uh, there are people who think that Jesus got this wrong, right? Jesus doesn't get anything wrong. What we understand is that he wasn't wanting us. The vagary and the difficulty of this text is trying to show us that we're not gonna be given signs and timetables, but that we've been given a mission and that we've been given faith in a God who is all powerful and will accomplish his goals. He finishes with one last thing here. He says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. That really is the summary of Mark 13. They say, tell us the times and the, and the, the signs. And he says, nah, not gonna do that. He says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, 
For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, right? They say, when's the temple going to come crashing down? He says, don't worry about it. Keep your eyes open. Stay awake. Stay active. Continue to pursue the things that I've called you to pursue because you're not going to be able to solve it. You're not going to be able to know. But what you can know is that you've been called to be my ambassadors, right? It's interesting. Paul says similarly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, there's peace and security and sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. What's he saying? You don't know what time mom's coming home. So wash the dishes, right? You don't know what time mom's coming home, so put your baby brother to bed. You don't want her to walk in and realize you've just been watching cartoons or whatever, like get to work, right? If you get distracted by what time you think she's gonna come home or you get distracted by your guesses of what time she's gonna come home, you're not babysitting your brother. I don't wanna play that illustration out too far. But I think you understand that the call for us is not to get stressed out about the signs and the wonders that maybe we want to interpret in the world, but rather to be faithful to do the things that are right in front of us. Instead of seeing doomsday, we see opportunity to put Jesus on display. He says, stay awake, stay active. Similarly, and I love this most of all, you've heard me quote this before, but in Romans chapter 13, verse eight, listen to this, this is Paul again. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's very similar to what Jesus said last week. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us, not walk, pro uh, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, in sexual immorality and sensuality, nor in quarreling and jealousy. Let's not walk in this selfishness, but let's walk in love. He says, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I love what Paul says here in Romans 13, and I absolutely think he's reflecting upon the teaching of Jesus in Mark 13. In Mark 13, he says, you all know, like, that we, we don't know exactly when it will happen, but here's what we do know, that in loving God and loving others, we can fulfill the law, and that's what we want to be caught doing when he comes back. He says, the one thing you can be certain of in Romans 13 is that the day of salvation is nearer today than it was yesterday. It's good to remember. Tomorrow, the day of salvation will be near. You're looking for some sort of indication of when Jesus will come back? If you're here tomorrow, it wasn't today, right? And if you're here the day after that, it wasn't tomorrow. But what can you be sure of? What can you be sure of? You can be sure that in the midst of the difficulty that comes, the deceivers and the difficulty, the disasters, right? In the midst of all of that, there are opportunities if you'll have your eyes open. What would cause you to close your eyes? Your guesses. 
that waiting for all of this to pass away and the next thing to come. There should be an anticipation of the fruit that will be produced, but not one that makes us idle, not one that makes us angry, not one that makes us divisive, not one that causes us to follow false teachers or false Christ, people who would lift up the name of Jesus, but they have nothing to do with him. He says, no, when these things go down, don't let anyone deceive you. Keep your eyes open and remain active like the watchman at the door who doesn't know what time the master will be home. And so he just has to keep awake. He says, I say to all of you, keep awake. It's a great note for us in the day in which we live, just like it was a great note for them in the first century. And it was great for Mark's readers in the few years prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. It's been helpful for us all along and we should take it to heart this morning. Church, let's stay awake and be vigilant, looking for opportunity, right? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even the parts that confound us or the parts where we have disagreements or the things where interpreters are divided and split. We recognize that you gave us your word the way it is, that you gave us your word with some vagary and some ambiguity and some things that are open to interpretation and that some of the time you gave it to us in order to lift our eyes above our guesses and our speculation, certainly to lift our eyes above the leanings of apocalyptic teachers and false messiahs. Will you help us to lay down our life for you and the gospel and the good of others and to flee from any sort of uh, association with beautiful architecture or national pride or religious sympathy? Will we be aligned and living for you and you alone? for the good of your, your gospel and your glory and the well-being of our fellow men and women who desperately need to know you in the midst of difficult times. Keep us awake. Help us to be eyes open in the day in which we live. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.